I think in college, I might have been like really excited to be, you know, like, imagine I could be the next Mark Zuckerberg or something like that. And it's like, uh-huh. to think about that now, it seems so dated. Yeah, I wouldn't <laughs> want to be Mark Zuckerberg now. Yeah. yeah. I'm Tor Bear from Enigma. Welcome to Decentralize This. Hello, hello, and welcome to the third episode of Decentralize This, presented by Enigma. As I said before, I'm Tor Bear, the head of growth for Enigma, and today I am excited to be speaking to one of my favorite people, Richard Crabe. Richard's the founder of Numeri, which is a decentralized hedge fund that has a really interesting model. Individual data scientists around the world compete to build and apply machine learning models to financial data sets, while staking Numeraire tokens behind their predictions. The top performers win prizes paid out in Numerair tokens, but they never actually see the raw financial data. It's all encrypted. It's an example of how blockchain, tokens, and privacy technologies are enabling new types of organizations and incentive structures. Now, Richard just announced Erasure, which is an unstoppable decentralized data marketplace that's also powered by Numerair tokens. We're going to talk about how and why Richard started Numerai and Erasure, the importance of protecting data, what other kinds of organizations blockchain and decentralized technologies could enable, and what it's going to take for people to maybe even leave traditional jobs to work for these new types of organizations. Richard's a really smart guy. I learned a lot talking with him, and I hope you do too. And if you want to learn more afterwards, just follow the links in the episode description. And now, without any further introduction, here is Richard Crabe. Richard, thank you so much for joining us on this, the third episode of Decentralize This. It is a pleasure to have you here. It is good to be here. Can you start off, like every show, just giving us about three or four sentences about who you are professionally, personally, uh, and what you're doing right now? I'm Richard Crabe. I'm the founder of Numerai. Um, Numerai is a hedge fund that crowdsources uh, predictions from people around the world. And Numerai created the Numeraire token, uh, which we're now decentralizing in a new protocol called Erasure, uh, which is going to be a decentralized data marketplace for predictions. That sounds super interesting. And as you might know, we brought on Joey Krug in our first episode where he talked about Augur, which is another one of these decentralized prediction platform. And we talked a lot about why these kinds of marketplaces need to be democratized, why they need to be decentralized. And I'm really interested in learning about how Erasure is, is approaching that same problem. But let's first start with Numerai because I have a finance background. I was a trader. I worked with quants. I knew about Numerai for a while. It's a really exciting project, but it's not like a lot of other decentralized projects in the space where they're, you know, building their own blockchain or they're doing something uh, like at a protocol level. You, you had a very different vision for Numerai. So I want to know, why did you decide to start something like Numerai? What made you believe that something like a hedge fund could be crowdsourced and decentralized or or why it should be? Um, it's very related to my own interests. And so I was a quant uh, creating a machine learning strategy for a $15 billion fund back in South Africa, where I'm from. And at the very same time, I was uh, competing as a data scientist in Kaggle competitions. Hmm. Um, and 
and reading about Ethereum. And um, so there are a couple of things happening at the same time, I think, uh, which is maybe maybe you can do finance differently. If, you, if you're doing machine learning, you don't really need to look at the data. Um, you can give someone just a representation of the data and uh, they don't have to know what, it, what, it, what anything means and they can still do machine learning. And then the blockchain piece was the incentivization. How do you get, how can you crowdsource um, predictions if, if you're kind of crowdsourcing against adversaries in a way? There are people who are going to just try to try to get lucky or try to make thousands of accounts. Um, but if you can have staking in the middle of that, um, you can get the incentives right. And so, yeah, I think blockchain and machine learning are just kind of guaranteed to have a huge impact on the hedge fund industry in the next five or 10 years. And um, Numerai has pretty much put, put itself at the center of, of that change. And it's a relative to a lot of projects. It's, it's an older project, right? I, I know older in this space is a really relative term. But when did Numerai start? Numerai started in December 2015. Yeah. Um, so before think, the ICO boom and, and a lot of these other projects, Enigma also started, you know, 2015. So we're in the same sort of class year, I suppose. Yeah, uh, I think Ethereum had launched. I think Ethereum had maybe just launched. It was like one dollar. Mm-hmm. And when we announced Numerare, Ethereum was on like five dollars or something. So yeah, it's really like we were like doing thinking about it for a while. And actually, Joey, who you just mentioned, Joey Krug, he was such a big help. Uh, he like helped write the Numerare white paper, and it's a little bit because I happened to meet Joey. When I first moved to San Francisco, uh, that's a lot what got me thinking about making a token. It's one of the first conversations we had a long, long time ago. It was like, I wonder if Numerai could have a token. And now it does. <laughs> now it does. Yeah. For 18 months now. <laughs> no, it's, it's incredible. It's a very collaborative space. Don't let anybody tell you otherwise. But I, I think there's been so much talk of tribalism in crypto and all these competing, you know, competing in quotes projects that we forget how much we all build on each other's work. Uh, and how much we rely on our peers in the space for for understanding these really difficult problems. It's totally. it's not solved. Yeah, and I hope it's as as easy as it was to to connect with uh, people who can help you. Because uh, I remember back then it was like very easy to meet with Joey, and I remember Joey was like, "Oh, you should talk to Vitalik," and I just like got on Skype and talked to Vitalik, and it's just like this very very like friendly industry compared to the hedge yeah. fund industry. <laughs> I mean, if it's still that friendly, I'm sure we could get Vitalik on this podcast too. So I'll, I'll just shoot him. <laughs> I'll shoot him a Twitter message and I'll ask him for some ETH and then we'll get him on. Sure. I don't think he gives away ETH. I'm not sure. He oh might. no. Well, <laughs> he there... gives it away on his Twitter all the time. You can check. Uh, that was going to be my angle. Oh, well, <laughs> well, we'll try something else, I guess then. Uh, but yeah, so Numerai now, so it started in 2015. It's, it, it's uh, come a long way. Uh, so now Erasure, right? And we'll get, we'll get to talk about Numerai again, because I've got some more questions about the platform. And, and as you mentioned, the way that incentives are aligned on the platform and how the token is used, that's, that's really interesting to me that applications of blockchain technology are not just the blockchain itself, but, you know, how it can create new kinds of organizations. I definitely want to talk to you about that. But first Erasure, because that's, that's new. You, you just announced this, right? Yeah, we announced it a couple days ago, three days ago or something. Yeah. But you didn't come up with it three days ago. So how long have you been thinking about Erasure? What is Erasure? And how does it relate to uh, Numerai? We've been thinking about it for a very long time. Um, actually, yeah, after the day of the launch of Numerair, um, I happened to meet with Fred Ursum, who's also 
mm-hmm. uh, friend of friend of mine and one of these great people in the community. And he came to my house to kind of like talk about Numerai. And we ended up sitting in the hot tub of my apartment and uh, <laughs> talking about talking about uh, the future. And he basically had always told me since he first met me talking about Numerai before it even launched. He's like, you can't just crowdsource the models. The machine learning part is what Numerai has been able to do, crowdsourcing models. But you need to be able to crowdsource data. And you need to get people to be able to come and give you their own data. And um, I thought about that for a second. And I was like, that's a terrible idea. Like if we ask people to just email us, you know, data that they think is good for the stock market, it will be like a total mess. Um, it would, you'd never get, you get people uploading all kinds of junk. But what if you let people upload data and they had to attach a stake to it? Mm-hmm. And we could, we could burn that stake if, if, um, if uh, the data was bad. And that was the beginning of uh, thinking about uh, Erasure. And in fact, I wrote a, a draft white paper for Erasure over a year ago, but uh, we just decided to to hang back uh, and uh, and wait until we were closer to to being able to actually de- develop it and deploy it. That's amazing. So Erasure is closer to reality now than ever. Uh, so why is that why is this the right time, do you think? Why, why is this like what the decentralization sp- space needs right now, as opposed to maybe like when Numerai was launching? I think it was, yeah, people were very confused um, about blockchain. And uh, there was not, not much of an understanding about how, how kind of simple and elegant it is. It's not really um, it like staking, it's such a simple thing. And it seems, it seems almost like you don't even need a blockchain. You know, if, if you have to stake money, why don't you just send the money uh, by PayPal and then, uh, and, then, and then PayPal holds it or something? Or like, why don't you just use escrow services? Or there's all these kind of like questions that are like very good questions if you're just learning about it for the first time. Mm-hmm. Um, and so people were just learning about the fact that companies can have tokens or uh, so people didn't, I don't think they were quite ready for hearing about, um, hearing about erasure, especially because we hadn't yet shown that it works for Numerai. And, um, now we've had almost, I think almost 18 months or 15 months or something like that of, of staking of NMR. Mm-hmm. It's been staked 17,000 times, um, on, on, on like millions of predictions. Um, so it's sort of like, it's sort of like guaranteed to work now, Erasure, like because Numerai is kind of running on the Erasure protocol. It was just the very first version of it. Um, so I like the timing now. Um, and I think people can easily get their heads around it. And um, uh, people in the finance industry really like it. Numerai users really like it. And other hedge funds like it. So I think it's going to be awesome. So what are you doing to help people wrap their heads around Erasure now? Because if you're very familiar with the space or maybe you've worked at a hedge fund for a long time or things like that, it makes it easier to grasp these kinds of emerging technologies. But let's say you're somebody who's not as familiar with the space, but you believe that there's a future for decentralized technologies and decentralized organizations. You know, How do you make sure that you're making that message and that technology still accessible for those people while still growing this core community of people who are you know, staking the token, providing their own data, participating in, in Numerai? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, 
it's very difficult. Uh, and I do see communication as a very big part of what my job is. Um, we numerize made tons of like videos that people really like, mm -hmm. uh, to try to, to try to explain things to people who've never heard it for the, who are hearing it for the first time. Um, but to get to the heart of the matter and like, um, the heart of the matter is like we're making economic incentives. And if you can understand economics, that's all you need to understand to understand what Numerai is doing mm -hmm. and what, um, what Erasure is Does doing. Does anybody you really understand economics? <laughs> I think they're nice, nice self-contained parts of microeconomics that people understand. Mm. Maybe Matt Macro is a bit of another story. That's, that's a fair point. Uh, so I was a, economics game theory auction theory concentrator in my undergrad years and i remember looking at a lot of these uh these open problems in game theory and being like oh if only there was a cool way to apply this and that's how i ended up in trading uh, but if blockchain no if blockchain had been a thing right if tokenization had been a thing maybe that's where i would have been dragged into instead i had to slog through this this uh, this other field of derivatives market making and high frequency trading and now if only I could have just gone on Numeri, you know. Yeah, right. Um, I I also think, in a way, if I were starting Numeri now, I would just just uh, be an Erasure user. Hmm. You know what I mean? It's like um, it's like way better than starting your own hedge fund. You just sell the predictions on Erasure. Because then you can focus on the the core thing, which is like making the alpha, and um, you can sell sell the predictions to other hedge funds who can maximize the the usage of your predictions. Um, and I like that that's what's happening now. There's like these all these different things that, yeah. In, when faced with the choice, in uh, when did I graduate? Like 2012. Um, it's really this whole space is like is, is uh, there's so many interesting things to do, um, and they're just cuts right through all of the old barriers that have been created. Um, so especially in things like finance. So I think it's going to be a very interesting future. Let's talk about some of those barriers for a second, because I have this open question of how are we going to convince more developers, but you know, also like non-developers to forego these sort of steady high income jobs you know, and, and two of the most lucrative jobs right now, as they've been for a while, are, you know, software development or quantitative trader. Uh, how do we convince people to maybe not go down these traditional paths uh, and maybe embrace something that's a little more speculative in terms of not, not in terms of the value, because we know what the value of these technologies can be, but it's speculative in the sense that we don't know exactly what the future looks like yet. We're still very early on in building it. You say that communication is important. How can we be communicating better to people uh, so that they maybe don't just do these traditional career paths and they think about building things like Numerai or Erasure or Enigma? Yeah, um, I think definitely Ethereum had a big – Ethereum's like branding and messaging was so uh, unusual when it came out. That was so compelling. Um, the kinds of conversations that it started um, changed the way I thought about things. Like, I think in college, I might have been like really excited to be, you know, like 
imagine I could be the next Mark Zuckerberg or something like that. It's like, uh-huh. to think about that now, it seems so dated. Yeah, I wouldn't <laughs> want to be Mark Zuckerberg now. Yeah, yeah. Um, like starting a social network or something. It's like, it's like, it's like a bygone era. Um, and the idea of kind of getting to the core, the core problems and even the focus on welfare, mm-hmm. um, like all the discussions about, um, I don't know, like the radical markets book or people, people trying to think, can we, can we do capitalism slightly differently mm-hmm. with, uh, with different incentives? I think that's very compelling for a lot of smart people. And so I see a lot of young people, uh, getting interested in blockchain, even though, um, I thought they were all interested because the price of Ethereum was going up, but mm. a lot of them are still interested. <laughs> yeah, it's it's one of those economic incentives, though, right? As long as there's a secondary market uh, for a token, it has some speculative value. Um, and I think we get into trouble when people start to conflate the speculative value of something with the tangible value of something. That's why it's really cool that, you know, with Numerai, you've you've got this incredible amount of staking already active. So it is nice to be used when when uh, you know, and for such a long time when when there's so much skepticism and so many things that are have kind of broken down since the ICO mania. You know, we didn't do an ICO; we gave the token away, and those people used it immediately. Um, some have used it every single week for like over a year. Um, so it's really nice to, to, to have that. And, um, I was just at Ethereum San Francisco conference mm-hmm. yesterday and a lot of people came up to me and like, yeah, it's, it's, so, it's so nice to see something that's being used, something practical. And people say that they use NMR as like an example of token that, that kind of got things right. Um, so that's, that's really nice because it was, um, quite a tough decision in a way. Well, it was an easy decision in the end, but it was it was an interesting decision for us to think about: should we do an ICO or, or not? I and mean, not doing it has had some some large benefits. So it's interesting because there's there's the token which has immediate utility today. There's Numerai, which is already an active platform. There's Erasure, which is just starting. You know, these are all things that are that are possible today with uh, the technologies that have been created, and they'll get better over time. And then we also have uh, a lot of focus on emerging decentralized technologies that are in like a very unsolved space, you know, whether it's privacy or whether it's scalability solutions or some of these other like major technical barriers, you know, we can already see like if, if we can solve some of these basic issues with decentralized technologies, it also unlocks a whole host of other applications. I'm wondering, what do you see as like the, the, biggest technical barrier right now to the adoption uh, or the success of decentralized technologies? Um, I don't know. I think, uh, I don't, I, well, on the one hand, I'm not even sure how, to what extent consumers will use blockchains um, or need to. End users. Um, yeah. yeah. And I, I think that... Uh, numerized example of this very niche user base, very technical already because they're all data scientists right. um, and very specific application in finance. I think there'll be a lot of those. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but uh, yeah, I'm particularly interested in applications that are can, can kind of like you can see how they would work today. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, 
I don't know too much actually about like the, the you know what the the five year technical challenges for the Ethereum blockchain itself, for example. Um, but I like that you can do a lot with some small uh, some small things like staking. Um, right. You can go you can you can you can get a lot of different behavior uh, coming out, and it's not interesting in a kind of technical basis in a way. It's just like oh, there's a stake of tokens in the blockchain, but it's really the emergent uh, economic uh, properties and the different kinds of commerce that it can enable, different kinds of companies that you could have never had before. That's what gets me excited. Great segue. I have a tweet of yours pulled up here. I'm going to read it. It <laughs> says, why are people porting consumer internet ideas from 2007 to blockchains? Ideas like WhatsApp, Facebook, Snapchat uh, are almost not even technology. They're UIs. I think this is you, not me. I'm just repeating your words. I think <laughs> blockchains should be used to make companies that couldn't exist in any form in 2007. So you've said this before. It sounds good to me. Let's talk through maybe some examples of these types of companies that couldn't exist in 2007, but decentralized tech, you know, whether it's, you know, blockchains themselves or these kinds of staking models or anything that's enabled by decentralization. What, what besides what you're working on do you think could be an example of this? It's quite interesting. It's quite hard to be, um, to be creative I don't know, as, as, a, as a rule. But um, in, in terms of companies, like you see the companies around you and you think, well, I wonder how you could do these companies differently. Mm -hmm. um, but one, one way I like to think about um, making it something on the blockchain uh, is what companies work perfectly fine in the real world, but you can't make like an internet version of them. Mm. Um, and what strange behaviors make sense in the real world, but never happen online? And one of the examples I can think of is like tipping. Like, you know, if you go into a restaurant, um, there's like a 95% chance you'll leave a tip um, with a waitress. Uh, and in, on, the, on the internet, if there was a website that said, please leave a tip after you use this website, mm -hmm. what do you think the percent will be? Like zero, like very close to zero. And... Um, so that's like a weird difference. And that's just like, there's a reason. It's just like something in human behavior and like the social contract of entering a restaurant versus like the social contract of visiting a website. Mm -hmm. It's just something that we've imagined is different about those two things. Yeah. Um, and, but imagine if you had a website maybe where everyone had to stake tokens mm -hmm. um, and then like people like destroyed stakes if you didn't tip or something like that then you can suddenly have like a restaurant on the blockchain. <laughs> um, uh, not to extend the metaphor too far, but you can basically think about that. And I think the same is true for, for hedge fund industry. In a hedge fund, you have all these people and they come to work and you have employment contracts and you have these like, you have to be careful who you talk about the strategy with and you have all these like rules. Mm -hmm. And um, But you can't really take that idea and stick it on the internet because all the kind of social contracts and legal contracts required to make a hedge fund kind of force everybody to sit in one room. Yep. But with staking and blockchains, you can actually make a hedge fund that is like the internet hedge fund, where the token is somehow kind of, kind of like aligning everybody to do the right thing and uh, make something that you couldn't otherwise do. So that's, I think, a nice, a nice analogy for... for for how people can think about these new new applications. So I think 
an enigma. We see things sort of similarly, maybe sort of differently, because I do the same thing where I'm like, what's something that is already out there in the real world? But I take something like Uber, and I'm like, Uber works to some extent because it's connecting you with a driver. It, it functions as a marketplace between the, the driver and the passenger you get from point A to point B. On its face as a product, it certainly works. Uh, on another level, from uh, from the perspective of protecting consumer data, uh, it fails horribly. And when I think about decentralization, I don't just think about, you know, like, how can we create new types of organizations that couldn't exist? I think about how do we create new, healthier, more sustainable, I think that word sustainability is key, more sustainable types of organizations and enterprises. Um, and here I think we start to overlap a little bit because I think part of the innovation that you guys have is that you're able to have these competitions, you're able to have this collection of data scientists, and they're not seeing the the raw data, right, on Numeri. Yeah. I think that in itself is a, is a solution that in tandem with these staking technologies it is what makes Numeri work, is what makes it so powerful. And if you had to expose all of that raw data, maybe it's not even a viable type of organization at all. Exactly. That's definitely an important uh, part of it. So if we gave away all of our data in raw form, people could run off and start their own hedge funds with it. Um, and the neat thing about machine learning is you can do machine learning on data even if you don't really know what you're, what you're modeling. Mm -hmm. And so we give out a form of our data that's totally obfuscated that people can model. But so they're able to contribute value to us without us giving away all of our valuable data to them. And uh, so that's an, that's an, that was the first kind of trick about Numeri. Like, could you get, how do you solve crowdsourcing? Number one, you need people to be able to work on it. Well, if people are going to work on it, they have to see it. And then they're going to just run off with the data. Okay, so that's why you have to have some kind of technology for obfuscating data. And then the next thing is, if people have no skin in the game, if they don't really care whether the, uh, the hedge fund goes up or down, or I live or die, um, then they're not going to not going to be too incentivized to produce really good good work. So if you let, allow them to stake a token, then uh, then the incentives align really nicely. No, it makes total sense to me. Obviously, I, I think about this kind of stuff a lot, and it, it seems like if we can combine these types of all these different types of solutions, I think that blockchain is becoming better understood. Right than when you were starting Numeri originally, or when Ethereum was launching. We have a better understanding of its strengths and limitations now. But what's what's in the public conversation now a lot more than maybe blockchain is this issue of the privacy of data. Far, far from like uh, just using it to enable new types of organizations, but just like people are being cognizant, like this is why we don't want to be Mark Zuckerberg anymore, right? Uh, yeah. People no longer want to be associated with uh, organizations that don't treat data the right way, that can't protect uh, this data. What, what's your take on just the, the social movement that's happening right now with respect to data privacy? Do you, do you think that this is something that's worth focusing on? Do you, do you see it as, as critical as the media might be making it out to be? Yeah, well, to quickly mention on about Numeri, the... the we give out this this data set um, that's encrypted or obfuscated, and users model it. It doesn't just allow Numeri to protect the 
protect our data, it means we never have to see our users' models because they only give us predictions mm -hmm. and so they can keep their models. And I think if we were to change to be like, hey, uh, we need everybody to actually give us all of your code and you have to use certain kinds of languages and certain kinds of libraries, then suddenly the whole fun of it kind of goes away. Right. And um, I do think you're right. That is like a, something in society that's happening where people are getting just more and more uncomfortable um, uh, using using things where they have to give give all the all their value away. Um, so it's nice when no one has to give any value away, and instead they can be bound by a nice economic relationship that they both want to be in, versus like being trapped in some central system that you can't escape. Yeah, I don't like the idea of uh, not being able to escape things. Uh, <laughs> it's it makes me feel very claustrophobic. Um, but that's what that's what I think decentralization as a it's hard to call it a movement because there are so many different perspectives and incentives in in a space like this. But generally, it's all moving in this direction of uh, the redistribution of of power. Maybe people. Like in Numerai, it's the data scientists themselves having control of their own models, not being, not needing to give the model away, and and as you said, having skin in the game. Having skin in the game is, it is a power. It's a risk, but it, it comes with a reward. And I think that's sort of self-actualization that's possible uh, with a platform like Numerai is really important uh, and gives people maybe a dignity that they don't necessarily have with uh, centralized platforms and centralized organizations. Yeah, I think that's true. And I, the power of a, a Numerai user, for example, they can just they can just quit. They can just stop using it. Right. They can be like, I don't like this um, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stop. And we don't have anything of this mm -hmm. when they leave. Um, it's like, but but if I quit Facebook, it's it's sort of like, well, I still, it's, it's, it's a whole different thing. Um, all my data is, was, was basically licensed to Facebook my, the whole period I was using it and yeah. they could do kind of whatever they wanted and run any ads next to my pictures and stuff. It's, it's, it's weird. It is a weird. They can weird monetize we, your ghost. It's very strange. Yeah. It's weird. We got this far with, <laughs> with them. I don't think they gave us much choice. <laughs> yeah. So that's the other thing. Uh, choice, you know, I do want to talk to you about, you know, is there a value to having some of these platforms be centralized instead of decentralized? If you give people the choice of being able to, you know, take their ball and go home, right? Pull their stake, leave the platform. There, there's something to be said uh, for some platforms, for some models where, where you do want people to be kind of bought in and aligned for the long term. If you're running a traditional organization, there's benefits to having it be hard to leave the organization or hard to fire somebody. You, you want there to be continuity, you want there to be institutional memory and so on. How do you see decentralized organizations or platforms handling that problem? Are, are there times when, you know, we would be better off having a little more stickiness to things? Uh, or, you know, and if there are, how can we building these decentralized platforms, be aware of that and, and build solutions that, you know, properly incentivize people to actually stick around? Great question. Um, I think, 
I think, yeah, more, if you have more free exit, it's better uh, than the, anyone who's really there really wants to be there. Um, anyone who, who holds NMR, mm. it's because they want to, right? They could always just, just sell it. Um, and at any time that's, that's true. Um, so it's very different to, to other services. And so I think, yeah, the more you have the ability to where, the more you have it be the case that anybody who's in this system wants to be there, it's better. Because I think if you ran, say, a survey on Facebook, and I think they run these surveys, mm -hmm. it's like if Facebook, you're using it 30 times a day, and Facebook asks you, do you like using Facebook? And you immediately say no. It's like, what's going, <laughs> what's going on? It's like there's something, something wrong. There's something about the, it's, it's sort of valuable to you, but in a kind of, in a kind of weird, like you're trapped kind of way. Um, yeah, they're switching costs. And so, yeah, you'd want it, you'd prefer it to be like you said yes every single time you used it. It wasn't because you just felt addicted. It was because you felt like it was this mutually beneficial thing for you and and the network right. to, for you to be there. Um, so that's much better. So it, it does create a complication if you're designing these platforms, knowing that, you know, if there might be lower switching costs, uh, you know, like let's leave staking aside for a second, but you know, the idea that it's decentralized, that it's like, if you, if you stop participating in Numeri and you can, you know, like you, you could theory in theory, go to like some kind of like competing platform and there wouldn't be as high of a switching cost as if you like had signed a non-compete with a traditional hedge fund and right. now you're going off and working at a competitor. It's a very different type of industry that you're creating. So what do you see as the, the future for this? It, it's a weird question because I'm asking you like, is Numerai anticipating having like competing other Numerais or do you think that it's natural in a decentralized industry like this that Numerai would actually grow to dominate uh, as a platform so that like all decentralized hedge funds kind of run themselves through Numerai? Does the question make sense? Yeah. Um, yeah, well, the first uh, part, I mean, if... If you do have a system where everybody can exit and, and we, don't have, we don't have any of our users' models, so if no users come back mm -hmm. to Numeri this week, we will not be able to trade. Our hedge fund will be over. Like We need our people to come back. And so because that's this constant tension and our users have this legitimate bargaining power mm -hmm. over being able to not come back, um, we have, it's almost like a force, it forces us to, to improve. Right. And... Um, and if we did have, um, instead, instead every, every single day we sent an email to our users that said, by the way, if you leave and join another hedge fund, um, we're going to sue you. We're going to put you in jail. Um, there's a whole different spirit <laughs> to that. And that's really what, uh, other, other hedge funds are like to work at uh, big hedge funds that you've heard of. They have put informal employees in jail. It's crazy. Um, it must be so. It's so it must be so tense to work there. I was on a non-compete um, for about yeah. a year. Yeah. Wow. Um, so that's that's. Uh, I don't really like that, and I do think that staking is a way a way out of that. But did you have a broader question there? Uh, you're leading me to maybe what a, mo a more important one, which is you know now we're getting into like the use of the legal system as an aligning factor historically versus something like you're saying where you're building economic incentives into the platform. And we're starting to come into uh, the stage of this industry 
where there's established institutions and established rules and regulations. And we have this technology that's very immature that not a lot of people understand. And we're trying to use rules from 1930 and yeah. sort of like backfit them, retrofit them onto, onto the emerging technologies of today. And it's creating all kinds of havoc. So what do you think about like not that I asked you before about the technical barriers to the adoption and growth of uh, platforms like Numerai and other decentralized technologies. What do you think about other barriers like political and social and, and these legal barriers? Like what do you see as being like the biggest non-technical barriers to adoption? I think the legal legal um, position uh, in the United States for being a blockchain entrepreneur here, it is uh, it is it's not a friendly place uh, for blockchain. And mm-hmm. um, it's strange. Uh, it's strange to operate in an environment like that. Um, and I think that is a big, uh, it's really slowing things down. Um, it's also, it's also hard to, to sympathize when um, it's it's hard to sympathize when the regulations are kind of around things that are like have really actually become like um, like things like Zcash, mm-hmm. you know, privacy stuff. Like you really can't we can't turn back the clock and not do that. And um, that's there are going to be privacy coins like that forever. And so I do think once something like that has happened, where there's this technology that's created that's not going away. Mm-hmm. The law needs to actually try to work with the technology, not really the other way around at that point, um, because it's out there. And so and and there's no one um, in charge of it. Uh, and so but then on the other hand, I do think there's some especially when it comes to fundraising, ICOs and things like that. I think there could be good guidelines for that. And I think all the good entrepreneurs would follow those guidelines and it would be very easy to go after the people who don't. Um, uh, but right now it's just like, uh, it's like, it's more like the guidelines are very, very light and it's almost like anybody could be bullied by, by the regulators at any time. I was reading about, um, Eric Voorhees stuff. I mean, the shapeshift guy, mm-hmm. like, He's such a nice guy. He's like the best. His friend was put in jail, Charlie Schramm, and he's just been like fighting for like the most sane stuff, um, like the most careful, well thought out things. And his products are used and people like them and so simple. And now it's just like this weird, like regulation uh, pressure that's push pushing his company around. I feel like I feel like something's wrong with that. It's a challenging environment, you know, being in the U.S. myself and and just wanting more clarity and at the same time wanting to build things that can be used today, not not wanting to just sort of wait and see what happens. You know, there's there's problems that need to be solved today, not just in the decentralization space, but like like you're seeing, like you're trying to solve a problem that already exists in the financial world. You know, we're trying to create new value. Yeah, and, and it can be frustrating uh, when people slow that down because they ne- haven't necessarily have they haven't figured out how to already. I, I can see them trying to reduce the value that's being created out of, out of the need for protecting some uh, some subsection of consumers. It's it's important 
But I, I see it less maybe as like this is a regulatory challenge, but more of like this is an education challenge. If we really want to protect consumers at the end of the day, what we really need to be doing is teaching them about these technologies and teaching them about the platforms that exist that utilize these technologies and getting them hands-on uh, with all of these platforms. To, to me, to me, that would make more sense. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, and uh, yeah, it's, it's, but it is a complicated issue. I, I can see the, the, the reasons to try to protect, protect people, but I must say, I'm really glad that no, no government protected me from investing in Ethereum and Olga and Polychain. I mean, I'm glad no one, no one could stop me from doing that because mm -hmm. I, I thought I'd done enough research. I didn't know that much right. at the, at the time of those investments, but I felt like I'd made a good assessment of the risk and for it to be impossible and harder and harder for people to, to be able to invest in things. Uh, I, yeah, I, I see it as a, as a very big, a big problem, but I'm not quite sure of the solution. I wouldn't know what, if I were in charge of the SEC, I'm not sure what I would do. And maybe that's why they're not doing anything. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, you don't have to be prescriptive. You know, your job is to, is to build what you build and to, to make it work for the most yeah. number of people just operating on the information that you have and trying to do the right thing. It's about all that anybody could ask you to do at this point. And I think you've done a very admirable job. So thanks. We, we've talked about a lot of things. I want to close with uh, maybe a, a tone of optimism rather than a tone of frustration, but there has to be, you know, beyond what you're doing at Numerai and with now with Erasure, there have to be like really good signs that you're seeing, right? Like we, there's been this market correction, but I actually, when I have conversations, I hear a lot of optimism from developers who see the rate at which, uh, you know, development pace is increasing, interest in the space from, from people who have traditionally been developing at large organizations, you know, whether it's Google, Facebook, or whomever, they're starting to come around. People are starting to, to figure it out. Uh, and, and the prices won't reflect that, but the, but adoption will, where do you, where do you get the most hope from? What is, what is giving you the most hope right now in the future of all of these technologies and platforms? Um, yeah, I, I kind of thought going into this year, it would be great if the focus shifted, um, from prices and, um, uh, to, to usage and Wish people granted. started, yeah, I think that happened. <laughs> um, and, uh, and there are a lot of people who are now really trying to understand, um, how they can use the tokens they bought, even if it's just to experiment, cause that would be great too. Um, and probably more people using MetaMask and things like that than ever. Um, and I know also from trying to hire people, it seems like blockchain engineers are still in higher demand than ever. Um, which you would think maybe that would have come down a lot in a, in a market correction, but I, that hasn't happened. Um, so there's a lot of signs for optimism. And the other thing is just the sort of, I've always found most exciting about blockchain is like, it's so, it's so hard to imagine what will happen next. Um, and how even a few simple things, uh, could just kind of totally invert or change how everything's currently done. Um, like, I don't know that like the moment we launch Erasure on mainnet, like what will be the first two days that, oh, like, I have no idea. It could, it could immediately, um, 
be used in, in all these different contexts for something we didn't even envisage. So, um, I'm, I think it's like, that's, what's the most exciting thing. And the idea of, of DAOs and there's so many things we haven't even seen that were contemplated a few years ago that are, are going to happen and in very unusual ways. My feeling is it's going to be a lot about finance, um, and incentives. Um, but, uh, yeah, we'll see. We will see. I, can you imagine working in any other industry right now? <laughs> um, well, I always have, I have to straddle, I have to try to like stay, stay abreast of machine learning research, stay abreast of content finance research and blockchain. And I must say blockchains kind of like took over my mind. Um, but I'm hoping to free up some of my mind for the rest of it as well. Um, but I do really like it. And I, I think people, it's, it's so interesting how kind of when people get it, there's something magical about it. Uh, that like clicks in people's brains even more that, so than I think when people first learned about the internet, there's just something so strange and interesting about it. Um, that it's like sucking in all this, all these smart people with the weirdest ideas. Well, my hope is that after people listen to this episode with you today, that they have that same light going on in their heads and in their eyes. Uh, and they get a little more excited about, uh, all these platforms that are being created. I hope that they look into erasure. I've looked into it. It seems so cool. I can't wait to see what people do with it. I'm sure you'll be, uh, publishing a lot more. I'm going to add links underneath the episode description so people can learn more about Numerai, about you, about erasure. Uh, and, uh, if people have any questions for you, what's the best way for them to like get in contact with the Numerai Erasure team or, or tweet at you or anything like that? Is that cool? Do you respond to tweets? What do you yeah, do? Yeah, tweeting tweeting at me is good. Uh, that would be that would be great. I'm at Richard Crabe. Nice. Yeah, we had we had Ryan Selkis on in the last episode, and uh, he he embraces Twitter very much. I think we have a lot of prolific. He's tweeters. funny. <laughs> he's he's a really funny guy. He's he's a good tweeter. I try to model myself after him, but I think I tweet about a hundredth as much. So there's always room for improvement. I, I find it hard to tweet a lot. I, I almost don't have enough ideas on a daily basis. I'm always amazed, like these really rich, powerful, philosophical tweets. And then people do like ten of them per day. It's like, where did you get these ideas? Well, there you go. It, Twitter is a great place for philosophical insight and free ether. <laughs> yeah. Richard, thank you so much for coming on Decentralize This. It was a pleasure to have you, and I look forward to talking more with you soon. Thanks a lot, Tool. If you want to learn more about Enigma, you can visit us at www.enigma.co. Uh, you can go to our blog at blog.enigma.co. You can join our Telegram group at t.me slash Enigma Project. Uh, if you're curious about anything we talked about in the podcast today, make sure you follow the links below in the episode description. Make sure to subscribe to us on YouTube or follow us on Medium so you don't miss our next awesome episode and interview. Otherwise, thank you for listening. We hope to see you next time on Decentralize This. I'm Tor Bear. Have a great day.